0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Jed Buckwald for a conversation about the Rosetta Stone. Dr. Buckwald is Doris and Henry Dreyfus Professor of History at Caltech, which is a university based in California in the U.S., He's the author of many publications, including several books over his career, including co-authoring the book, The Riddle of the Rosetta, which was published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the call, Jed.
1: Well, thank you. Glad to be here. It's
0: great to have you on the call. So what was or is the Rosetta Stone?
1: Well, it certainly is probably the single most well-known ancient artifact, certainly from Egypt and that part of the world. Uh, It's a large stone, uh, kind of black granite, and on it are carved uh, three different inscriptions, one in what everybody's familiar with, namely Egyptian hieroglyphs, all of those... uh, representations as they were used to be thought and there's a middle script very different and then finally at the bottom is uh, the a script in greek and of course greek could be read it was discovered um, in uh, 1799 during the uh excavations if you will or not excavations but refurbishing of a fort that napoleon's army having invaded in 1798 uh, was redoing and a soldier by the name of bouchard uh, discovered this uh, object and immediately recognized that because you could read the greek maybe there would be a way to use this thing to finally read the ancient hieroglyphs themselves which had not been readable for Oh, 1600 years nearly by that time.
0: Okay. Okay. And we're going to spend some good time on the actual deciphering part because I know that predominantly has been where your research is when it comes to the Rosetta Stone. But to create adequate background for someone that may be um, new to this topic, um, can you explain how Napoleon's army got to Egypt?
1: Sure. Well, of course, this is in the middle, or towards the end, really, of the French Revolution, which broke out in 1789. And by the late 90s, um, the revolution had changed radically, and the country was being controlled by a directorate of generals and others. Uh, Napoleon wasn't initially part of all of that. Uh, Napoleon had uh, decided after having given up the idea of invading england when he was persuaded that this was not going to work that one way to get uh, a line up if you will a leg up on the english would be to invade egypt because egypt um, could be used potentially to block their access to india and so on and also it would have conducive to Napoleon's reputation which was already high as a general. So he decided to invade. He had a massive armada of ships including the one he was on called the Orient. Now the thing about Napoleon you see is he was trained as a military engineer and he thought of himself as something of a scholar even as something of a scientist. So he brought along with him scholars and scientists some very famous ones on this ship uh, and established in cairo after many battles uh, uh, and uh, i might add that the native population the egyptians were not very happy about this They were also not happy about the fact that they were ruled by the Mamelukes imposed by the Ottomans. But in any case, Napoleon established an institute called the uh, Institute of Egypt in Cairo, the building for which still exists, by the way. Mm. Uh, And there, scholars began to work on establishing what Egypt looked like, uh, making images of many of the monuments and so on. Travelers had been going there from Europe for decades, but now there was a concerted effort. And so that's what happened. Napoleon went back after a relatively short time to become eventually emperor, uh, as everybody knows, of France, while many of the soldiers and scholars stayed there until uh, uh, Admiral Nelson, running the English fleet, uh, defeated um, uh, the the French fleet. uh, And that's when the English took possession of the antiquities that the French scholars had accumulated. And that's how the Rosetta Stone, as well as other such antiquities, wound up in the British Museum and not in the Louvre in France.
0: Okay. So, Bouchard discovers the Rosetta Stone in the year 1799. Is it is it believed that Indigenous people in Egypt knew about the stone prior to that, and and that was just happens to be when a French uh, person found this found the stone. Or is it believed that that was the first time in some somewhat of a long period of time that a human being found the stone?
1: Well, you see, <clears throat> after the demise of Pharaonic Egypt, and especially after um, not just uh, the um, development of Christianity, but after the Islamic conquests, um, the ancient temples and so on, and most of the ancient artifacts, you know, were regarded as something uh, dangerous, uh, inhabited by demons and things like that. And moreover, Things like the Rosetta Stone, made out of nice, hard stone and so on, were very useful to be redeployed as building materials. Mm. So, in fact, the Rosetta Stone was stuck and used as a rock, if you will, in building this fort uh, (coughs) uh, that um, we call the Fort Julien, uh, that the French renamed, that had been built by the Ottomans and that the French were refurbishing to take over for themselves. So it was basically just stuck in there as a stone. So nobody had seen it since it had originally been produced, which was about the 190 or so B.C.
0: Did they know the significance of it when they found it?
1: Bouchard, the the French... um, some of the French soldiers, at least, were fairly well-educated, especially the ones that had been trained at the École Polytechnique, really the first engineering school, uh, strictly speaking, uh, in, in the world, founded in 1794 or 5 during the French Revolution. And it seems that Bouchard very rapidly recognized the significance of this. Um, uh, Egypt had been spoken about and written about for many many decades especially during the 18th century and he uh, immediately he probably knew some Greek and he could see that there's Greek writing on this thing and that you know there are these other two scripts he knew about ancient Egypt of course there have been lectures that these soldiers have been given so yes he quickly recognized that you might be able to use this to figure out the actual meaning of these ancient hieroglyphs
0: so that people can vi- visualize it approximately, how how large is the stone?
1: It's, uh, let's see, it's, I think it's about three and a half feet tall by about two and a half feet wide, something like that. Okay. And it, it, it's thick, it's about 11 inches thick.
0: Okay, and made of a a, a granite. Is there any other major materials that's thought to well, it's, be yeah. it's thought to be uh, comprised of?
1: Yeah, it's a form of granite called granodiorite. Very hard, very hard stone. Uh, oh. Often used in ancient uh, Near East uh, areas for carving things that you want to be pretty permanent.
0: Okay, and my question about uh, did they know the significance of it? And that's almost getting ahead of ourselves in the conversation. So I want to ask another question about that. Um, What about this discovery is significant?
1: There are many aspects to it that are significant. Um, For one thing, uh, in some ways perhaps the most significant, there were two completely unreadable scripts from pre-classical antiquity one of which was not really well known uh, at all, and the other was Egyptian hieroglyphs. The other script is called cuneiform. It's the script that was used in ancient Mesopotamia. Neither of these could be read at all. There were, of course, many uh, pre-classical languages Uh, which were written in various scripts and had been worked on, especially during the 18th century. But it turns out that all of those scripts are in one form or another, either syllabic or alphabetic. So in other words, you could sound them out, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, But these scripts were completely unknown. As I say, hieroglyphs, I've forgotten exactly when the last hieroglyph could have been read. But it was certainly uh, no later than the 4th century AD uh, and cuneiform was basically unknown. So it was incredibly exciting. Plus, ancient Egypt had captured the European imagination for centuries and there were obelisks in Rome. The Romans had brought stuff back. Uh, Stuff had been erected all over the place uh, during the Renaissance, during the 17th century. There had been great interest in these things. Uh, and whatnot, uh, and uh, travelers had gone to Egypt even during the 17th and 18th century from Europe. So mm-hmm. it had tremendous interest, great significance as a, uh, uh, the first such script uh, to be discovered. And uh, when the Egyptian antiquities came back to London and uh, subset of them to Paris as well, it created what became known as Egyptomania, about which a number of books have been written, a tremendous fascination. Uh, in fact, to this day in London, you can find some buildings that are, uh, were constructed sort of on Egyptian uh, temple models and whatnot. So it has mm. many different significant aspects to it. And in the end, it is what allowed us for the first time to reach a deep understanding of the culture and history of ancient Egypt itself.
0: Okay, up until that point in time, could contemporaries decipher or understand adequately any Egyptian hieroglyphs? Or was it as a result of this uh, deciphering of the stone that only then could people begin to understand hieroglyphic writing from Egypt?
1: no it was it had been strictly speaking close to impossible for anybody to understand such things now there was a uh, priest uh, named athanasius Kircher during the uh, 17th century
0: mm-hmm.
1: who had essayed an interpretation of the egyptian hieroglyphs now kirker was convinced as were many people who saw those signs that they did not really represent language that they represented sort of secret uh signs representing hidden knowledge of the ancient egyptian priests and so he sort of produced uh, what amounts to a pretty fanciful interpretation of the few hieroglyphs that were around as i said there were some carved on obelisks that were known in rome and elsewhere uh, that had been brought back by the romans um, there was an ancient uh, text uh, that had been uh, published during the Renaissance, which gave you, uh, attempted to give you some significance to the signs, but it, it doesn't really get you very far with anything. So the answer is that no, you couldn't read any of this stuff until the period we're talking about.
0: Okay. And you mentioned different um, linguistic Phrases or words like cuneiforms and hieroglyphs I think you, you said ancient Greek at, at, at some point as well so specifically how many different types of languages or dialects would it, is on this stone
1: two ancient Egyptian because both the hieroglyph script and the one that's in the middle just below it represent the ancient egyptian language mm-hmm. and the one at the bottom is greek as it was spoken in about the second century bc uh, under the greek dynasties which had taken over egypt with the invasion of alexander the great in the fourth century bc
0: okay can you speak about then uh when and where the first breakthrough occurs and by whom the first breakthrough occurs in deciphering the stone
1: well so let me begin by saying uh the following um when uh my colleague diane uh, josephowitz and i began to work on this (coughs) uh, one of the one of the sort of myths if you will about the decipherment so-called that we tried to dissipate is associated with the fact that though I just used it, we don't like the word decipherment. And let me try and explain why, because it's relevant here. Mm -hmm. When you think about decipherment, you think of a code, a code, a kind of cryptographic code that's designed to, as it were, hide something. And you need the key to the code to figure it out. Um, these uh representations on the stone here uh, are not anything like that it's not strictly speaking a decipherment that's one two uh the problem here is that strictly speaking though i'll make a couple remarks about that in a moment nobody knew what the ancient egyptian language was so And you had no idea, not only couldn't you read the script, presuming that it represented the language, which is a question, but even if you could sort of sound it out, assuming that that's how it was written, you might not know what the language was at all. Uh, Now, there was a suggestion that this fellow Kircher had made that I just mentioned, that the language spoken by the Coptic Christians in Egypt Uh, the early Coptic Christians, and that still persisted as the sort of church language of the Coptic Christians, might be a late version of ancient Egyptian. Um, And so there was that possibility. But otherwise, you just didn't know.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And then can you um, expand on what occurs then in... And and please don't frown if I say deciphering in the in the sure. chat, <laughs> um, but in this deciphering, translating the the breakthrough. So what can you can you share what actually occurs to the point of uh, uh, contemporaries at the time understanding Egyptian hieroglyphs for the first time?
1: All right, um, it's an extended period. Okay, mm-hmm. the the uh, famous moment that is usually associated with uh, the time at which one could actually begin to read this script or both of these scripts uh, on the stone the hieroglyphs and the one underneath it and the one underneath it is known as demotic uh,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: to distinguish from the hieroglyphs Um, the classic moment that people can read about, it's a very famous moment, uh, occurred in September of 1822 when the young Frenchman Jean-Francois Champollion read a paper uh, before the academicians of the uh, uh, Institut de France in which he presented uh, the outlines uh, of his interpretation and understanding of what the signs might stand for and so that's the classic moment but we really have to spend a few moments uh discussing what kinds of representations we're dealing with here please yeah so um there are two dis all right i will use the word decipher myself <laughs> uh, there are two of them involved here okay. one is a very famous englishman named thomas young uh he's much older well fairly older than Champollion, he's born in 1773, Champollion in the 90s, and Young was by 1814 a very famous scientist, he was a medical doctor, but he was also a famous scientist and quite a good mathematician. Uh, Champollion was a kind of young, uh, hot-headed, radical sort uh, who almost got himself into trouble during the uh, restoration of the monarchy after Napoleon's downfall. And he was, from the beginning, very focused and deeply interested on the stone. Now, both of them, from the beginning, did think that this demotic script, the one that's not the hieroglyphs but the one that's in the middle, mm-hmm. did represent the Egyptian language in some form, but this Two different ways you can do that. Uh, There's more than two, but there's at least two different ways you could write a script which would do that. First of all, you could write a script the way we do, namely so that each of the signs represent uh, what are nowadays called phonemes, basically alphabetic characters, Uh, maybe not including vowels, but at least consonants. You could write a script like that, Mm -hmm. uh, like Hebrew for instance, or Arabic, uh, or ancient Greek, or Latin, or Greek, or French, etc. But you could write a script which represents the language, but doesn't represent the sounds of the language. Each of the signs or groups of signs might represent words. So you might have a sign sequence, for instance, that represents the word ox. It might not even look like an ox but maybe it did look like an ox there could be other sign sequences that represent things like running a man running and so on and you could put these together in a sequence so that um, it does represent the language by words but unless you were a native speaker of the language although you could learn how to read this because it represents words and the concepts behind words, you'd have no idea how it sounded at all. And that was the way Mm. both Young and Champollion initially thought about these two ancient scripts, that they represented the language, but not the sounds of the language, you see. Young persisted in maintaining that Mm. to his dying day. He died in 1829. Uh, He never accepted what Champollion eventually did decide, was that the signs of both the middle script, the demotic one, and the hieroglyphs represent more than words. Sometimes they do, especially in the hieroglyphs, represent concepts. But for the most part, he began to argue in 1822, they represent the sounds of the language the actual sounds of the language. And that is a, the major difference between the two of them. Young never could progress to that point. And as we go on, I can tell you what the difference is between these two guys. It's an interesting story.
0: Yeah, I've had um, Dr. Bill Manley, an Egypt uh, Egyptologist on the show in the past to speak about Egyptian hieroglyphs. And um, I learned a lot Listening to Dr. Manley about that because I think it is very easy to look at an image, and I won't do it, you know anywhere near the same degree of justice um, as Dr. Manley explaining it. But um, you could look at an image and easily think that the image is supposed to represent the concept. I, I, that's how I looked at hieroglyphs initially when approaching this topic. And I, yeah, the breakthrough for for me is what what you're saying there, Jed. Um, oftentimes, it's the uh, it's it's the sa- it's the sound, and then that that image image equates to the sound, and then y- you can use that image then for other scripts or words to start to construct that form of communication. Is that is that doing it a reasonable amount of justice? What I just said there.
1: Yes, and in fact, there are elements of exactly that in the way in which um, Champollion. Uh, did figure out how to read this uh, structure, mm-hmm. um, but of course, um, let us say, for example, you know, to take another uh, example, you had an image of a uh, a rock. Right. Obviously, in ancient Egyptian, there is a word for rock, and let us say that uh, uh, that the sound for that, uh, as you just mentioned, could be used to put together a sonic structure, a sound structure, for the writing system. Mm -hmm. The problem with a system like that is that it can become a mixed system in which sometimes the sign stands for the object it looks like, namely a rock in this case, but other times it may stand for the sound of how the word is spoken in the ancient language and the principle that you just uh, remarked on namely taking the sound for the uh, represented object and using it to put together a script like that that's actually got a name for that principle it's called the rebus principle uh, rebus for the word the thing in latin that you uh, mm-hmm. repurpose the sign mm-hmm. so uh, Again, for instance, in English, if I drew a picture of an eye, I might write a script in which that picture actually represents an I, or maybe, since we're speaking English, it stands for the sound I. in which case I could use it for the first personal pronoun instead. Uh, now, this is a very tricky thing, because in fact, Egyptian hieroglyphs, as Champollion first uh, conceived is a complex mixture of signs that stand for sounds and signs that stand for um, concepts, if you will. Uh, and uh, it, 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 he produced an entire uh, dictionary eventually for these things, and that was substantially modified during the 19th century, of course, as Egyptologists probe deeper and deeper. But Champollion was able to do this, namely to, um, if you will, reread these things as sounds only because he was convinced that the Coptic language was a relic of ancient Egyptian. So he would take Coptic words, Mm -hmm. look for if he saw a picture of something that looked like something, he'd look for the same word in Coptic and conjecture that maybe that was how it was pronounced in ancient Egyptian, and that took him fairly far, actually.
0: Um, how many years? Okay, so I, I want to go to Young and uh, Champollion, the relationship, and then, and then I'm going to ask how many years they were working on this um, project. But what was the dynamic or relationship between these two people? Because you mentioned one died with a certain point of view, another one continue to work on it. Can you speak a bit more about the relationship that these two individuals had?
1: Well, of course, as I said, Young Young was a famous man. He was even uh, Secretary, Foreign Secretary of the Royal Society in London, a very important position. And um, he came to this uh, basically as an exercise of interest Um, and that will bring me to his relationship to Champollion in a second Mm -hmm. Uh, he was a practicing doctor in london and during the summer he would go to a town uh, on the seacoast called worthing with his wife and one summer in 1814 he happened to take along with him a couple of uh, prints of the Rosetta Stone Mm -hmm. and he decided to look into it and so he worked on it basically during that summer of 1814 is when his major work appeared he didn't write too much about it for a number of years but by 1819 the uh, publisher of the Encyclopedia Britannica asked him to write an article about it, and that is when his work became more widely known. Now, Champollion, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. is a young upstart. He'd gotten himself in trouble. His brother had always tried to sort of keep him under control and brought him to Paris, where Champollion um, worked uh, under the auspices of some of the... um, What were known as arabists of the time and orientalists uh, words that have come into disrepute uh, in the last several decades but one in particular named sylvester de sacy who is a specialist in uh, arabic languages and other languages and the structures of languages champollion came into a complex relationship with him eventually didn't like him too much Uh, and at the same time champollion went to learn about coptic with a Coptic priest who had come to uh, Paris uh, following the Napoleonic expedition. So he learned Coptic. And he, Champollion, was fascinated from the beginning with ancient Egypt. He wanted to understand it. He admired them for what he could tell, what he could knew, uh, know. And uh, around 1811 to 1814, he wrote a book Called uh, uh, in French, Les Pharaohs, the Pharaohs, in which he tried to give you a story about the monuments and the rivers and so on of ancient Egypt, uh, given the limited information he had. And that, he sent a copy of that to London, Hmm. to the Royal Society, and that was handed over to Thomas Young. Uh, And Young wrote him, and they began a a correspondence at that point. And Young sent him a pamphlet on what Young had done. And Champollion uh, began to work on such things uh, at the time. So that starts around 1814. Hmm. And initially, their relationship is friendly with Young, the well-known senior famous Englishman Champollion, the somewhat hot-headed radical trying to make his way in Paris uh, and the junior guy in the thing. Um, eventually, their relationship turned antagonistic.
0: Okay, um, this might be oversimplifying what they had to do, but we, we can start there. Were they were they basically trying to match the Greek uh, writings to? Uh, Uh, equally to the script of the hieroglyphs? Like, were they they looking at a line of Greek writing and then looking at a line of uh, signs or images of the hieroglyphic writing, and then that was their way then to do the translation?
1: That is more Young's way than Champollion. You see, since Young uh, didn't think that either of those scripts, though they did represent the ancient Mm -hmm. language in some fashion, he didn't think it was related to Coptic at all. The only way he could work uh, was by working with the Greek. And he was extremely good, um, uh, what was known as a Grecian. He was very well trained in Greek. Mm -hmm. And um, he had also an excellent ability to perceive graphic forms and structures so he during that summer actually cut up the prints he had of the stone into strips and he worked not with the hieroglyphs but with this demonic one in the middle which is much more complete than the hieroglyphs anyway if you look at an image of the stone you'll see that the upper left-hand corner as you face it uh where the hieroglyphs are at the top is basically sliced off so the middle one is more complete and then what he would do is he would identify words uh, or various kinds that appeared multiple times in the Greek and then looking at this middle, the sequence of signs in the middle passage, try and see if he could identify repetitious patterns there as well. Mm-hmm. He was helped in this by the fact that it was by then fairly well known uh, that uh, some of the names for royal uh Uh, personages pharaohs and so on in the hieroglyphs at least would be circled by these ovals called cartouches that doesn't appear in the middle script and he worked mostly with the middle script and he was able thereby to identify a number of names Mm -hmm. for instance the name ptolemy which appears a number of times in the greek as well then there are sign sequences and so on and he does a pretty good job at this but you can't get too far with that because unless you actually know what the language is that's being represented there in some fashion or other, then you can't really go much beyond that uh, because the two texts are not literal translations, word by word, obviously, of one another. They're in different languages. Imagine taking a passage in English and a passage in French about the same thing and translating one into the other. We all know very well that it's going to be very different in a lot of respects. So that was how he worked. Champollion eventually worked quite differently by, yes, he did identify repetitive patterns, but he immediately went to Coptic to try and find the significations of the words. So there is the difference between them. And that's why Champollion went far beyond Young. Young was willing to admit that some of the signs might actually represent um, the sounds for the names of pharaohs like Ptolemy and so on, but only for those pharaohs that had come to power after Alexander the Great's conquest namely the Greek descendant pharaohs. He didn't think that anything before that would have any sound significance. Champollion originally agreed with that, but he had an, uh, an epiphany, a breakthrough, in uh, late summer of 1822, in which he changed his mind completely and thought that it would go very far back indeed.
0: Okay. What uh, Greek dialect is on the stone?
1: Well, of course, I'm not an Egyptologist (laughs) or a Grecian. Obviously, it is the um, form of Greek that was spoken during the Hellenistic period uh, in ancient Egypt. As I say, it was written sometime around uh, 196 B.C. or thereabouts uh, during the reign of Ptolemy V, uh, Epiphanes, as he was known. Uh, and uh, it uh, it was copied in a number of places as it mm-hmm. turns out though this is the only full copy that's ever been uh, that's ever been found uh, of the thing and it announces various things now i can't really tell you what the dialect mm-hmm. of greek was that was spoken in egypt by the 2nd century bc presumably it's not that different from uh, uh, Greek that was spoken at the time of Alexander uh, you know 150 years
0: before uh, but that I can't really speak to okay so if you were to summarize the contributions that Young made to this subject and the contributions that uh, Champollion made to this subject what would you say
1: I would say that Young's signal contribution was bringing this to a much wider notice than had been before and opening the possibility if you will of figuring out a way to understand these scripts and also for continuing to push the notion that at least the middle of the script this demonic did represent the language of ancient Egypt, if not the sounds of the language. Now, um, I cannot say that you can take pretty much anything, although, except for a number of sign identifications that Young made, that is in any way comparable to what Champollion was able to do once he made his breakthrough. If Champollion had not been around, And if things had sat the way they had uh, at the time young died in 1829 i think it would have taken quite a while longer before this script could be read Uh, so really it is to champollion not that he was correct in everything he certainly wasn't uh, because egyptology developed subsequently but it is to his uh, credit uh, that should go the real reading of these scripts and especially the large book that he wrote and published in 1824 called the Precy of Ancient Egyptian in which he laid out his uh, scheme for how to read these things and for his insistence as well that all of the scripts of Ancient Egypt, this Demotic, the Hieroglyphs, and another script known as Hieratic, which was used by the Ancient Egyptian uh, priests when they didn't want to carve something in stone with hieroglyphs, that all three of them uh, represent uh, the Egyptian language in one way or another, with the middle script, the Demotic on the Rosetta Stone, being used uh, for a more easily read to represent the more commonly spoken uh, idiomatic, if you will, language of ancient Egypt. This is to Champollion's credit, not to Young's, and they really did get into A little bit of a bitter quarrel towards the end of Young's life. Young didn't really want to be quarrelsome but his friends in England were upset by what they regarded as this upstart young Frenchman who did not uh, give sufficient credit to uh, Thomas Young and so they pushed Young and Young eventually wrote a book in which he um, quietly claim credit for some things, and he is due a fair bit of credit, but it's really Champollion who deciphered, if you will, this script.
0: Okay. Do scholars believe at this point the, the puzzle, uh, if you will, of, of the Rosetta Stone, do scholars believe that it's solved, or are there parts about it still that is just not known?
1: Well, I think there remains some discussion concerning exactly how to read these things. And the reason is that um, we don't know fully ancient Egyptian. There's nobody uh, descendant alive who can speak this thing, despite its putative relationship with Coptic. So the so-called readings of um, hieroglyphs on uh, uh, for example, the, uh, the the hieroglyphs, the pyramid text hieroglyphs uh, can sound very weird because we can't really properly read these things. And in fact, to this day, there remains controversy about how to read the pyramid text, granted that they're very, very old, going back to 2600 B.C. I don't think there is great controversy uh, remaining at all, even maybe even not much at all, concerning how to read the uh, uh, writings on the stone itself, uh, in part because we can map it against the Greek to pull out the uh, significance. But I'm not, as I say, an Egyptologist, uh, but I'm not aware that there is much controversy over that at this point.
0: Okay. Since its discovery in 1799... um, has there been any significant discoveries of this kind of nature since of the magnitude of a of a rosetta stone and as part of this question too maybe it's a uh, a follow-up question but feel free please to answer it in this in the same uh, uh, response if the Rosetta stone wasn't discovered so if that never happened how do you believe history would have been different
1: well <coughs> in these it's it's a difficult what if question in the absence of the rosetta stone i think it would have taken at least another decade two decades before these scripts could be read there were other um, there are other obviously uh, copies of the egyptian scripts on mummy wrappings papyri and so on Mm -hmm. i suspect at some point somebody would like champollion Uh, have begun to map things bit by bit a little bit with Coptic and that would have taken him a little bit further and then would have gradually opened things up but without the Greek to uh, bounce things against I think it would have been very very difficult to do and would have taken quite some time uh, at least another couple of decades I suspect Um, but indeed the Rosetta Stone was found uh, and So, and and now we can read it. But I think it would have I think the ancient Egyptian, at least uh, to a great extent, would eventually have been um, deciphered, uh, even in the absence of the Rosetta Stone, though it might have taken a lot longer.
0: Okay. You've spent a significant amount of time on this subject. You wrote a scholarly book on on this subject. Why did you choose the Rosetta Stone to spend a lot of your time studying?
1: Okay, well, (laughs) I mean... I am by training, and most of my other books are in the history of physics and not the history even of languages or anything like that. So I will tell you a story. It yep.
0: um,
1: goes back to, uh, I think it was 2004. My wife and I were in, uh, were in uh, Paris. Uh, mm. I was uh, giving a talk on the history of physics about something or other. And I've been going to Paris for many, many decades and I like to frequent the old bookstores. Mm-hmm. In those days, books still actually existed. Mm-hmm. So, <clears> there <throat> was one bookstore that I knew had early 19th century mathematics and physics publications. So I went in there, we went in there, and I did, I found some, and while I was looking out of the corner of my eye, I saw uh, on a lower shelf, uh, a red bound book bound in red leather Mm -hmm. and stamped on the cover on the spine was the French word stamped in gold zodiac so I opened it up and it was a collection of pamphlets and these pamphlets were all about this uh, ceiling that had been carved out of uh, uh, a temple in Egypt uh, uh, by uh, a French archaeological marauders, if you will, and brought to Paris and had generated a big controversy over how old it was and so on. In any case, that was fascinating. And as I started to write a book on this, again with my colleague uh, Diane uh, Josefowicz, who had been my PhD student years ago at MIT and is now a well-known short story writer, um, we um, ran into Champollion towards the end. Because Mm -hmm. it was Champollion who, interestingly enough, had, in looking at uh, the printed designs of this Zodiac, because the whole thing hadn't been brought to Paris, just a part of it, had identified on the part, on the design that had not been brought, a little oval with some writing in it. And that writing uh, seemed to Champollion to represent the Greek word autocrator, uh, that, In other words, although it was in hieroglyphs, you could transliterate it as a Greek word, and that meant that the temple ceiling had only been built during the Alexandrian times and not thousands of years before, and this actually uh, made Champollion's name. So we became, became interested in what was involved in all of that. How did he start to read this? Of course, hmm. probably more has been written about this uh, decipherment than almost anything else in uh, in uh, in history actually if you look at the thousands of things and i thought there wouldn't be much to write i was just interested in it but as diane and i looked into it we found that actually it hadn't been thoroughly written about because mm. there was tremendous remains in the archives in champollion's hand with colored diagrams and in london in thomas young's notes with the cut-up strips and so on, Mm. that told a very different story from the one that you can normally read about. So that's why we decided to do it.
0: Interesting. A a French trip, trip to France, a bookstore, uh, a red-bounded book was the impetus for the journey that you ended up taking.
1: It was indeed. Actually, we wrote another book before that Mm -hmm. about that Zodiac. Um, And then that, we continued on with this other one that zodiac book took us about five or so years to write but it took us a decade to write the one about the decipherment
0: it's been enjoyable speaking with you jed thanks for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge today
1: a pleasure enjoyed it very much
0: again everybody the book that dr buckwald co-authored the riddle of the rosetta i'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode Jed and everybody listening as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.